From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to Full Hour of Sports Analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey coming to you this week with my colleagues, collaborators, and friends, Eric Bradlow and Audie Weiner. Shane Jensen is out this week. He will be back. We are coming to you via Zoom as we typically do these days. And we are recording on Tuesday afternoon, also our typical window. The show will go up on SiriusXM tomorrow morning, Wednesday morning. It'll be replayed a few times over the course of the week. We'll get the podcast up on Wednesday as well. Appreciate y'all being with us this week. We have a guest in the second half of the show. This is the format we're usually working with these days. Guest in the second half, Kylie McDaniel, ESPN baseball writer, is going to be with us. Fun conversation with him. He is an expert on baseball prospects and the draft. Terrific fun talking to him coming out of the draft about where scouting is in baseball. Lots to learn for other sports. It's kind of the cutting edge of personnel evaluation, what's going on in baseball right now. So a lot of fun with Kylie coming up in the second half. Gentlemen, we have open topics here for the first half hour. Pretty sure that's the right place to start. Eric often wants to start with some random Cincinnati tennis tournament. Something happens with somebody. Well, we didn't have the hot dog eating. We had the hot dog eating contest, but let's not start with that. Oh, no, my (laughs) God. We almost got by without you mentioning it. But what I'm trying to say is this is a week of the year where we fully honor tennis's place at the top of the program because it's Wimbledon right now. Not only is it Wimbledon, but it's been interesting so far. So, Eric, tell us what you're paying attention to on on Wimbledon. Well, I mean, I think you have to start with the way Djokovic is playing. You know, I, you, I obviously age curves happen in sports, but I mean, I just watched him play today, the number seven player in the world, Andre Rublev. And this looked to be as good as I've seen Djokovic play in a long, long time. And he doesn't seem to be physically slowing down. Um, he is speed. I mean, they, you can measure this. So they show statistics during the match about how fast he's running, how far he's run, uh, everything else, um, you know, I, I'm not, I it would not surprise me if he wins the grand slam this year. Um, I, he's got to be the favorite to win Wimbledon now for sure. He's in the semifinals. He's playing a very good 20 year old, very, very good. One of my favorite young players, Yannick Sinner. Um, but you know, let's assume that goes the way we expect it. Although I will say last year at Wimbledon, Sinner was up two sets to love against Djokovic and then Djokovic beat him six, three, six, two, six, two in the last three sets which is commonly what happens. You can beat Djokovic maybe for two sets, but let's say you beat him for five. Um, And then on the other side of the draw, you know, Alcaraz and Medvedev are still there. Um, But the men's side seems to be Djokovic just seems really strong and unbeatable at this point. It wouldn't surprise me if he won the Grand Slam this year. And, you know, it would not surprise me if he ends up with 30 majors. It would not surprise me at all. Okay, so Djokovic in fine form and so far looking strong in the tournament. What about the other men? I mean, it's hard to I, – I, I happen to watch a little bit – was it Saturday morning? I saw Chris Eubanks beating some Australian, and he's continued since then. He's into the quarters now? Is that a He's into the quarters. Right? He, beats, he beats Sitsipas, who's the number five player in the world in the last round. Um, and then as a gift, he gets now to play the number three player in the world, Daniel Medvedev. Um, in the next round. And then if he's lucky enough to beat him, he probably plays the number one player in the world, Carlos Alcaraz, in the next round. And if he possibly gets by him, he gets to play Novak Djokovic. So what's impressive is not someone, I don't know who he's going to win or not, but he conceptually can end up playing the one, two, three, and five players in the world in the same tournament. How would you stack those guys versus Djokovic? What's the, where's Djokovic's greatest risk coming from? If you had to call it right now, is it Alcaraz, the obvious easy answer? No, no, I don't think Alcaraz, I don't think grass is his best surface. I don't think the greatest risk comes from him. I think it's, um, let's talk from statistical perspective. I think it's that he's a 36-year-old. We hope that he's got a bimodal distribution, that he happens on a given day to have a draw from the bad day, and that some other player plays extremely well. I think that's the hope. But if, if if Djokovic draws from the big hump of the distribution, not the bimodal small hump, which rarely happens for him, he's going to beat every player there on grass. Maybe the only one who, if he plays his peak, his total peak could have a shot on grass. 
might be, maybe, would be Medvedev, maybe. But even then, I, I think he's a heavy, heavy favorite in all of his matches. I mean, let me just say, by the way, a couple stats that are interesting. So first, he's the four-time defending champion at Wimbledon. He's going for five in a row. On center court at Wimbledon, which is the only court he plays on, he has not lost in 10 years. The okay. last match he lost on center court was the 2013 final against Andy Murray. He has not lost on center court in 42 consecutive matches now. So, I mean, he's the overwhelming favorite. You just need, you know, 36-year-old random distribution draw from the small hump. All right. Well, you know, the thing about tennis, it seems to me that we we see these overwhelming favorites, and sometimes, for some reason, they do get the bad draw. They don't work out. So, for example, on the women's side, today, Swatek goes down. So give us some context for that one. Yeah, so I, I've loved the women's side of the draw. It's been fantastic. I mean, I was uh, – Alina Svitolina uh, beat Iga Swantek today. She should have beat her in two sets, but she beat her in three. Uh, Swantek, again – except for a guy like Djokovic, not everyone is great on every surface. Swantec has won three French and one U.S. Open. So she's great. I would have, the U.S. Open, surprising. She's not a great grass court player. Actually, this is her best performance at Wimbledon. And so the fact that a big hitter like Svitolina beat her is not surprising to me. Uh, Vonderosa then beat Jess Puglia, the, the uh, U.S.-based player, so what's interesting is on one side of the draw, we have two unseated players. So actually, there will be an unseated women's player in the finals of Wimbledon. We know this. We know this for a fact because they're playing each other. In fact, Svitolina, who just had a, a, a child this year, although she had been number five in the world, she was a wild card to get into. She was given a wild card. She was not ranked high enough to be in the draw. And she's likely, I think, in my view, to be in the finals. So the women's side is wide, wide open. Of course, the defending champion is on the other side of the draw, Elena Rabakina. And, of course, Arena Sabalenka, who's also been winning a lot of majors recently, is also on the other side of the draw. So the other side of the draw is just an absolutely brutal side of the draw. This side of the draw has been much more wide open. All right. Well, these things are going to play out over the next few days. We have the women's final typically on Saturday morning. I'm assuming the rain still do and men on Sunday. In the meantime, I know you guys are distracted by other sports this week. We had the home run derby uh, part of the all-star break last night. I think uh, Adi enjoyed that thoroughly. Adi might give us a rundown, but then of course I want to hear your thoughts on, on the game itself. We've got the, the rosters were announced last week. We didn't really have a chance to talk about it in detail. What do you guys think? Well, one, odd. Talk, talk to us about the home run derby. Yeah, and then so, what are y'all thinking about the game and the roster? So the home run derby I always find to be just enormous fun. It's like a pageant. And, uh, and one of the nice things about baseball is that it has this incredibly isolated individual performance aspect of it. And you isolate it even more when you do the home run derby. You get to see just how incredibly impressive these hitters are. Um, but it's, uh, it, and it's just a, it's a competition, so it's a lot of fun. And um, they seem to be incredibly impressive home run hitters. The batch this year, their percentage rate, I don't know if this is something that has been calculated historically, percentage of balls that they were served up, and they're meant to be hit out, out of the park, obviously, um, was just seemed to me higher than I've ever seen kind of across the board. Um, the only one who seemed to really seem to have some trouble was uh, Mookie Betts. He, he, he did not hit that many. And in fact, he did seem a little overmatched. Um, he's an amazing home run hitter in the game, but doesn't quite have that immense power. And there's a lot of benefit. You get an extra 30 seconds if you hit two balls over 440 feet. And that's a really long <laughs> shot for him. Um, and of course, how the many winner, people, Adi, how many people got that bonus? Uh, most of the others did it. Um, that's, I mean, for someone like Vlad, it's easy picking. He's, he's strong enough and big enough to do that pretty easily. But my final, my final two comments, number one, it's really important to have someone who throws exactly where you want it every time. And, it, and there was a lot of variation. Alonzo, who's, a, who's an amazing home run hitter, was stuck with a, a pitcher, um, a very good, apparently very good batting practice pitcher, but was not practiced and was throwing lots of pitches um, out of the strike zone or low and outside. That's and that awful. just cuts your power down. And of course, Alonso is a beast and he's hitting home runs the opposite field, but he's not going to win with that kind of uh, a yeah, path. Yeah. Finally, what was missing from this year. But Adi, just a quick question. Is the rule, just to remind me, 
Years ago, they switched. It's based on number of swings, right? It's not based no, on no, time. It's time. It's time. Oh, then that's totally different. Okay, then totally so it's, it's in the right, so you got swing, and they would just take pitch, pitch after pitch after pitch until they got the one they want. This is far better. It's time. You get three minutes and another, and you get a bonus of of thirty seconds or another extra bonus if you hit the long shots. But what was missing from this year, and I have to say, I miss it most of all. There was no Stanton or Judge or guys hitting at 500 plus every, I mean, one after the other. These guys are great, you know, line shots, 420, 430, 108 mile per hour shots. But where were the 115s, 118s, the bombs that go 500 feet off the back of, uh, you know, the the, the stadium? And and it just were ridiculous. Um, I really miss those. um, and, And those didn't happen. Well, speaking well, of which, question, in, the, in the last week, didn't Otani hit an almost 500-foot home run? Yes. Yeah, so? Otani did in a game. Um, but, uh, of course, he wasn't at the uh, the home run derby. And there's the thing about it is, is it a game, the thing that drives a, a home run, it's, all the conditions are the same on that day. So you really get a chance to see every, everybody. At a game, the, unfortunately or fortunately, the biggest driver of a 480-foot home run is going to be the atmospheric conditions in the park on that day. Yeah, right. And the ball group, the balls vary and the atmospheric park effects vary quite substantially. And so that's, that, that's going to, that's the reason why you're seeing 480 on a given day, but you know, Stanton and judge, these guys can hit 500 on really any day. Well, let me ask you more from a, let's call it a conservation of energy perspective. Do you actually want to win the competition? Shouldn't you throttle it back and not try to hit it 480? Like, shouldn't you take a bunch of 90% swings and hope to hit them all 410 and just yank it or 350, 360, just yank them 10 feet over the fence, not 100 feet over? Absolutely. It seemed to me that that's exactly the strategy that wins the best. I mean, I think I thought Rodriguez uh, was fantastic, but he seemed just utterly gassed uh, by the time it got to the end. I was going to ask you how exhausted they were. Three minutes of giving it all you got, as many swings as you can get. That's going to be a bit of a workout. I mean, these guys are professional athletes, but still, they don't need to, they don't do that at the plate. Um, all right, what about the game itself? What are y'all interested in seeing, watching? What intrigues you about the rosters? Anything? Or are, are you not interested? Is the base? I mean, baseball has the best all star game, but that doesn't mean it's a good game. It's not for me. It's just so many uh, young players from from a couple teams, the Braves. It's I'm not excited about it. How about you, Eric? Yeah, definitely not excited about the game. I mean, I'm looking at the rosters right now. I mean, I'm just trying to think. So, how many players would I am I excited to see play? I'm always excited to see Trout play. Um, I you know uh, Randy Arozarena, who was in the finals, my understanding of the Derby. He's a guy that's playing. I assume Aaron Judge was is not playing. There's no way he's playing. Yeah. Um, is Shohei playing? Is Otani playing? I don't even know. I mean, he was elected, obviously, but I I, I, I know, but I don't know that he's playing. Does he? I thought he had some sort of injury. I mean, Freddie Freeman's always ex- exciting. Arenado's exciting. Acuna's exciting. Betts is exciting. But there's nobody. I mean, I look at this, and I, you know, I know we're going to talk about it next week. I don't look at this and say, "Wow, this is like Hall of Famers, Murderers Row right here." There's some very good players here, but I, I'm not excited about any of them in particular. You know, you know um, what, what strikes me, Eric, is a little bit different. It's uh, it's very much um, driven by what kind of year you're having at this particular year up until this point. There's great point. A less um, kind of model averaging, if you wish, if you will, than we used to see. I mean, I remember like Rod Carew would, he would be in it every year, right? Or George Brett or, you know, the guys who were great and you just honored them with the all-star game, regardless of the season that they were having. I feel like we do a little bit less, maybe less of this um, uh, or more of it. I mean, obviously, I mean, uh, as Maddie just put up in our chat, Cole is, uh, is the starter for the AL, but, but by metrics, he's at least in the top five pitchers this year, at least by most standard metrics and certainly by war. He's, he's very likely deserving of that. Um, you know, uh, I, I wish, you know, one of the nice things, if you also, now that, we, now that every team plays every other team every year, you get to see everybody. And it's less of that excitement to, to, to be able to watch um, your, the players that you only read about, get to see them on, on, uh, on television. And that, of course, is our modern era. Everybody's available all time, every day. And that, that takes a little bit away from the All-Star game. Well, let me ask you a question. Do we have any data on the following? Since we're obviously an analytics show, maybe the reason Rod Carew, George Brett, et cetera, were in every year is because they played great every year. 
So is there is there evidence to suggest that players aren't don't have that extended period of time of greatness that in other words, let, I mean, the other possibility is they didn't do model averaging before or you know, season averaging just guys. There were just a handful of guys that were first ballot hall of famers that played great all the time. I don't know the answer to that, but just think back to the 19, you know, late 1970s. You got your every year. You knew the all-star, Hall of Famer catcher, all, Hall of Famer first baseman, second baseman, shortstop. Every year there was barely. But but but, but, uh, but maybe what if it, what if it's because we didn't know as much about what they were doing? What if they just got by on reputation alone? What if it was self-fulfilling in that way? Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, also we were we were letting statistics like RBIs drive those right. decisions, and those are our. Right obviously far more robust year to year and they used to be more so more stable because we didn't have this jumping around that we do in the lineup and and rbi is uh i think are potentially less interesting as a stat today than they were back when in back maybe oh sorry go ahead are players from the blue blood teams overrepresented in the hall of fame conditional on their actual achievements like, so we, if you ran your models, historical oh, models, yes. look, I'm oh, thinking yes. about like baseball, you know, we used to only watch a few games a, a, a week and everyone's watching the same teams. It's like college football back in the day. And so you get to know the the blue blood teams essentially. So it just leads me to wonder if hall of fame, if team team, the team you're on drove most of what happened, not most, but a big chunk of it as opposed to the actual production. Absolutely. I mean, for starting pitchers, Unbelievably so, because wins were one of the most important Hall of Fame stats for forever. And wins are extremely correlated with big yeah. name blue blood teams. And that's a giant predictor. Um, and, yeah. and, and it took, you know, by my measures, and maybe next week we'll talk about it. I have a new measure of war for starting pitchers. Nolan Ryan is actually one of the best five pitchers ever. Oh, for sure. The guy's 50-50. I mean, he's a 500 pitcher over his career. But he played for terrible team after terrible team after terrible team. And <laughs> most um, kind of, if you will, stiffed pitchers on the starting pitcher side are all pitchers who played for pretty crappy teams and, yeah. uh, and then just didn't get the attention, okay. didn't get the Cy Young Awards that they deserved. Um, they didn't get and, and clearly didn't get the Hall of Fame vote. So it's something that's really important. Mm-hmm. So Matt's asking the very reasonable question, how many deserving All-Star games did Jeter get? He had 14 of them. How many oh, come on. How, Matt, are you just trying to razz on our, uh, on our Jeter? Come on. <laughs> but I think it is, it is fair to say you look at the, let's even the starters in this thing, and you say, look, Trout is on, I mean, Trout's a Hall of Famer. We all agree to that. I think Aaron Judge will be a Hall of Famer. I think Shohei will be a Hall of Famer. So that's three on the American League side. On the National League side, it's just hard to say. Maybe Mookie Betts. Maybe Acuna. It's hard to say. It's early in his career. Uh, I've, I've, I just posted on Wharton Moneyball this week on W at W Moneyball. I think Freddie Freeman's a Hall of Famer. I think he's been under. I think he's he's got a shot to get the three thousand hits and five hundred home runs. So I think and being what the fifth or sixth guy to do it. Um, so, but there's probably five Hall of Famers here out of eighteen players. Is my prediction. And so that's not as exciting as the old days when it might've been 13 hall of famers and five non hall of famers. I would agree. I'd love to see that stat calculated how the, just either look historically how many there were and, and currently how many there are, there are predicted. Um, we have pretty good predictions. I mean, Trout is, is undoubtedly in already. If he's, if he played one or two years, we'd basically be saying he's in regardless of what he does. I would say judge has to prove himself. He's got a long, long way to go, but his trajectory is good. Um, Shohei, same thing. You know, he can't just be, can't, he won't, if he, re, if he retired tomorrow, he wouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. Um, but where is everybody else? Freeman is probably the only one who's close to being like, if he retired within a couple of years, he'd make it. Doesn't have anything to prove. I think we're, it's way, way lower. Five, it might be the expected value. But at this point, there, there's only one sure thing on the, on the roster, and that's Trout. Agreed. Uh, we're teasing. Adi's got a model, not of active players, but of the of the guys who are coming up in the queue. And his model is giving us things like predicted year of inclusion, predicted number of ballots. Good fun. Good fun, Adi. We've got the um, election ceremonies or the ceremonies coming up next week. And with that, we'll do a little bit more detail on Hall of Fame. 
Um, guys, let's go to the other end of the spectrum in a player's career and talk rookie league basketball. There's also actually other news coming out of the NBA. They've had they're they're following the NFL model of figuring out how to make the league in the news 12 months a year. Now, they've already got a long season, but now they're making good news over the course of the summer as well. So one, Women Yama made his debut in the rookie league. This is again, you know, the supposed best potential, best prospect since LeBron. And he goes out and he scores like nine points in his debut. And all these luminaries were in the audience. And happily. And then and then game two happened. Game two, he comes back. He throws down what was it? It was it was 27. 27, 12. 12 yeah. And, and apparently he showed some of that defensive force that we talked about on the show a few weeks ago, kind of the not going to take as long to figure that part of his game out. And so, and then the Spurs just announced that he's not going to play anymore. I think they have two or three more games. He's not going to play in those. So fun, fun little drama with women. Yama. Um, What else around the NBA? I'm really curious to hear y'all's thoughts on this NBA cup. Did you pay any attention to the announcement over the last couple of days about the NBA? I know they had talked about it, but I, 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 no. So what, what I, I assume you, well, it says here in the rundown, it's a new in-season tournament. So I guess there's going to be a break to the. It's uh, not a break. They've worked there. So this is a long, apparently a long time pet project of Adam Silver's finally getting off the ground. Their, their model is roughly, at least as I understand it, as I remember, is the Champions League where you're playing a tournament kind of feathered in with your regular season play. And so a team is competing in something in parallel and they're doing that. The difference here is that they're doing it within the NBA schedule. And they're just going to say these games beginning in like November, there's a November, December, January, they have a series of games that count their regular season games. They go for your record, but they also are, they, they have a group stage and then they have a knockout round, just like, you know, just like world cup or whatever. And they eventually will declare an NBA cup winner. In it means they, though, they must have some sort of flexibility in the schedule, depending on outcomes, then they, right. are they they're going to, so right. So what you're telling me, this is very interesting to me. So you're telling me right now, they don't know the final NBA schedule because the NBA cup would affect who plays who in the knockout round, which will affect how many times they might play each other after this whole thing is over. I don't know if the if the schedule after the tournament is contingent on the tournament. That I don't know. But what's true is the, the games that make up the tournament itself are contingent on what happens in the early rounds. They know the the pools. They created six pools or five pools. I think it's five pools. And they know who's in what pool. But from then on, and they must know the the, the group stage games. But after that, you know, they don't know who's going to come out. Of it. And they are going to, the teams that don't come out do play games to keep everybody even in the number of games. They just don't go forward on the tournament. Adi's looking very confused yeah, about yeah, that. Very confused. Does this end up with the better teams having stronger schedules for the regular season because they played more, more deeply into the tournament or the, the cup and therefore have presumably, had presumably, but I mean, note that this is very different from the, NBA playoffs where you have best of seven series. These are knockout games. Yeah. Does anybody care? I mean, do the teams care? Well, that's, <laughs> that's, the, that's the question. And the, and the NBA is framing this as, you know, look, people didn't care about the play in games the first time around either. Then two years in, we realized, Oh my God, these, this is fun. And Oh my God, here comes the number 10. No, but the play in games affect who wins the NBA title. This NBA cup doesn't. Well, that's true. That's true. Yeah. But look, here's the thing, Eric. Do you care? Will you care? More? I'm not, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not on payroll here, but I, I'm open to the possibility this will make us care about the middle of the NBA regular season more than otherwise. It's a pretty low bar. But, you know, I mean, you see in soccer, they got fired up. You know, Man City wins the FA Cup. And it's like one of the three things. They won all three this year, right? They won Premier League, they won Champions League, and they won the FA Cup. Who the hell knows what the FA Cup is? Well, it's all these British teams. They all play one big tournament, and they they they, they, they apparently care. So who's to say this doesn't three. become one like minor? No one cares as much about the FA Cup as winning the Premier League, but they apparently care about it. Some they care. The fans will care if the players care. That's it. If the players turn it into something important to them, the fans will come and follow with great intensity. Well, it goes. And, it probably goes yeah. both ways. But by the way, Matt tells us that the FA Cup started 150 years ago. <laughs> so just wait 150 years and they're going to really care about this thing. 
You know, it's interesting because I'm, I'm reading this wonderful book of, called The Baseball 100. And one of the things that you read historically about baseball is that playoffs and, and World Series victories were so much about money. And the, they needed it. They were salaries were low and the, the share of the World Series wins was huge. And they would play intensely to win the World Series or be in the World Series for money. I just can't see. Okay. Buddy, buddy, these guys yeah. are smart. They, they, they've come, they know this. So yeah, but they get so much money anyway. I mean, what is it? Is it but it was $500,000. You win, you win the thing and it's an extra $500,000 per player. You play in the finals and it's like $250,000 a player. You play in the semis and it's a hundred, $150,000. So there, there's money. There's, I mean, maybe these guys don't care about 500,000, but I suspect they do at least a little bit. <laughs> some of them. <laughs> some do, some, right. Some do, some don't. The, the thing that would really get them is if you counted these games more than a one. That yeah. would get them excited. Yeah, now, yeah. That, would be a, that would be a design, like count these games as like four. That, well, uh, I, we should take oh, yeah. bets on how much this matters or how much attention this gets or, or whether anybody cares, say, two, three years into this thing. And I suspect... I think the NBA is pretty good at figuring these things out. I, and if it's not quite right, I think they probably tweak it. So I'm, I'm optimistic that it's at, at least look guys, we bitch about the regular season all the time and it seems excessive and unnecessary. And here comes a little bit of wrinkle, you know, maybe, maybe this, maybe the thunder wins the NBA cup in the middle of the season. It's like another little, well, I, you point out an important point, which is how correlated will that be with the NBA champion? How correlated will it be with the regular season record? And in some sense, it's hard to measure effort, although with with video and stuff now, we might be able to. But in some sense, they're hoping in a lot of ways that it's very correlated. Well, that's it. Mean, you, 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 you don't want to perfectly correlate, right? You kind of want to spread the, the awards around in some sense. Yeah, I, I also, I, Matt's saying also knockout. I mean, we don't get enough knockouts in basketball. My God, we everything's best of seven. So knockout adds some interest to it. And that's going to break the correlation to the winner of the uh, Well, great, great point. All right, team. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have another half to go. We have a great little interview coming up on more baseball. Good fun. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the second half of Wharton Moneyball, a full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Rolling into the second half of our show, this is Cade Massey along with two of my three longtime collaborators. Adi Weiner is in here. Eric Bradlow is in here. Shane Jensen out this week. He will be back. We are delighted to welcome onto the show. We had Kylie on about a year ago, I think. Kylie McDaniel coming back on the show, talk baseball. Kylie is an ESPN baseball insider, covers a wide range of topics there, baseball topics, draft reagency, relevant right now. Previously, Kylie wrote for Fangraphs. Before that, he worked for four different Major League Baseball teams. He's been around the world of baseball. Kylie, welcome back. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for making time for us, man. You're just in from from uh, Seattle, right? Up for the all-star all-star break home run derby last night what'd you catch uh so i went up on friday uh there was a high school all-american game uh in the i guess t-mobile park now i was about to call it Safeco. uh then saturday we had a rehearsal for the draft broadcast and then sunday we i think we did seven hours of live tv for the draft uh which was incredibly tiring <laughs> and then yesterday i flew home uh, and crossed all those time zones. And today I had to finish up my first review of the sort of first impressions, 10 things that uh, impressed me or 10 teams that impressed me from the draft so far. And then it is wrapping up right now. And then Thursday and Friday, I'll have a more full thoughts on all 30 teams and all that good stuff. So the, the whole year long marathon just ended and we're about to start, uh, I guess another 363 days of marathon again. Right. Right. I mean, the, the baseball draft itself is a bit of a marathon, but of course it comes at the end of a full year of marathon. Kylie, you mentioned a high school all-star game. Is that just for show to add some ceremony or are guys still being scouted that late in the process? Oh, no, it's for next year's draft. So the the sort of thing that had normally happened is you would have uh, the stuff, you know, essentially 365 or however many days ahead of time would start the day after the draft. And they kept all that stuff in place when they moved the draft back a month. So now some of the stuff for next year's draft happens before this year's draft, which is incredibly confusing. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right. Well, um, tell us a little bit about what you saw in the draft. And I'm curious about this new, the, I, I'm right. Am I not that the, the combine is a new, a new thing for major league baseball. The combine of course is a longstanding major gathering in NFL circles. Is it a new thing for baseball or is it just getting a new profile lately? Uh, I believe this is like the third year. Uh, it's the first time I've been uh, that MLB is uh, trying to figure out ways to get all of the media there. Uh, this year, for example, I believe all media members had their own suite at the uh, D-Vax ballpark in Phoenix because there's like 60 suites and 30 teams. And so there's like 30 empty suites and they're like, hey, if you guys come, you can have your own, which is weird. I was just sitting there by myself. I uh, did an interview for ACC Network TV and they're like, what are you doing? Like you have the whole ballpark to yourself. I'm like, well, we're in between uh, events right now. So it seems like it. Um, but yeah, they ended up having, I think it was like hundreds of kids there and they have a bunch of new rules to try to encourage kids to go where you can't have private workouts if you're in the top 300 after the combine. So there's like two or three weeks there where all the team can't have a private workout. So you have all the workouts early. And then obviously a lot of the kids will be going to the combine and there were, I don't know, like 40 bullpens, like a hundred guys taking BP and infield. There was a high school game that was like 12 innings. Uh, they really like sort of up the profile Whereas the first year, it was sort of like maybe a third or fourth round pick will show up and turn into a second round pick, like a handful of them, maybe a first round pick or will get guilted into taking batting practice so they can say he was there. And now between this and the MLB draft league, which is like some of the minor league affiliates that were trimmed in the, um, the last CBA, uh, those now have, you know, say seventh, eighth round picks turning into fourth round picks, all the teams get data. There's uh, a lot more sort of blanketing of information as opposed to in the past. It was like, if you found out April 15th about a good player and a season ended soon, you just wouldn't find out about them. And you, there just wasn't a way to do it. And now there's a lot of different avenues to get your information out there. Okay. Well, you as a baseball follower, as a baseball interest, you just spent a lot of time in the draft. You're writing about the draft. Did you learn things about players at the combine? Did you find it a valuable source of information? Yes, I didn't think I would. I was uh, sort of, we'll say, encouraged to go. Uh, I didn't want to make it part of like my travel budget. Uh, there was a kid named Devin Saltaban uh, from Hilo, Hawaii, who I had literally never heard of. I would have heard his name sort of late in the process. Um, he was playing well at the draft league, and so I was kind of curious about him. And at the combine, he just like fit in with all the other kids that looked like they were going to go in the third or fourth round. And I think he went the third round yesterday. And I think he's maybe the biggest example of someone who would have sort of flown under the radar enough to not have enough demand that he then got his skills out there. Which obviously, as you can imagine, being a high school kid in Hawaii with real tools that nobody scouted until that spring, and then didn't get to face any velocity during the spring, how would you prove that you're good? And so he's a great example of the things that can happen that, you know, can, I would imagine he made hundreds of thousands of dollars because of this process. Wow. Kylie, um, what kind of things do you think are observable in the combine, a baseball combine that would be predictive of actual performance in major league baseball? Like, I mean, obviously if a person can throw hard, that would be good if someone can hit the ball, but I mean, they're probably not facing major league quality pitching. What kind of things are they looking for to measure that will be predictive? Yeah. So like I, one of the things I uh, mentioned on the broadcast is uh, the very tippy top level of amateur baseball. So if you take like LSU, Wake Forest and Florida at the very end of the college world series, that level they were playing at was still like a hair below low A. So because there's still four or five guys on the field that aren't going to make it to low A or will be like backups. And so it was yep. basically like a bad low A game. But there were two or three guys that will probably go straight to high A, like Paul Skeens or whoever. Um, so to put that in context, that means every single player in the draft, no matter how good or advanced or how much track record you have, you still will be surprised by what will happen at low A. Like you don't really know yet. Um, which is probably depressing. I think the average fan thinks that that level of baseball is double A. It's like not even close. Um, so to that end, teams are looking at um, qualities that players have. Like no one has put like, for instance, Tim Lincecum, Justin Verlander, they were top 10 picks and one Cy Youngs. They didn't even barely throw changeups in college. It was by far their third or fourth pitch and they invented it as their best pitch in the big leagues. So in that case, you're looking at guys that are good at things and you're drafting them because they're good at things, but you feel comfortable taking them because they're good at learning new things and developing and have what it takes between the ears, the mental makeup, things like that. And so with the combine, you're looking at essentially traits and you'll see them against guys that are their peers, which is essentially equivalent to rookie ball, the lowest level of the minors. Um, but like Saltaban uh, ran enough to play center field and had exit velos in line with, you know, sort of low a age appropriate uh, right fielders. So it's like he has the margin for error 
that if he can't hit at all, he has the physical tools or maybe there's some trade value. There's some things you can teach him, um, but it really can't be more complicated than that because even Dylan Cruz winning the Golden Spikes and being famous since he was 14 and being, for some people, the obvious best player in the draft, if he goes to low A, we still don't know what's going to happen. So seeing them against major league level pitching is four levels above. And like you have to give them three, four years to get there. It's just a lot of guesswork and partial information. And we're 70% sure this will happen and 20% sure this will happen. And then a bunch of 70s and 80 percentiles is what is the top of the draft and a bunch of 10 and 20 percentiles. is what. Well, let, let, me ask you, let me ask you just a quick follow up just based on your last point, Kylie. If I'm a a level player well i will you as a baseball team learn more about me if i face a level pitching double a pitching or major league pitching like major league pitching i'm assuming i will just do if i'm a hitter i'll just do terribly like i mean yeah a major i'm I'm just not going to hit well so is it is it like one of the things that information theory we know is you learn more when things are matched is that true for baseball is that your belief Yeah, I think the best thing that can happen, and this happens sometimes in like the high school showcase environment, where if you get three straight at bats against the very best pitchers in high school that are, you know, sitting 98 and could go straight to low A, uh, when you're used to facing rookie ball or non-professional pitching, that's essentially one level above you. And so we don't know what the hitter will do in that situation. If he then succeeds three, four, five times in a row, you get a decent sample size, or you can look at the qualities of the at bat where, you know, it doesn't look like his heart rate sped up. He's fouling off pitches. He doesn't seem fooled. Uh, that tells us something that he, he would then succeed at the next level. And like, there's a guy last year that went in the second round that if they redid the draft now, he would have gone eighth overall instead of 60th overall. And it's because he went one level higher. He went to that low A level and mashed in a level that we didn't, we thought was technically possible, but unlikely. And then he did it. So I would say taking these high school players if you go face low a pitching that will basically tell you what we'll think of them next year gives you a little like a glimpse into it uh in the same way that a lot of guys are in triple a if you throw them in the big leagues they'll hit right now but we don't know and so a lot of times because we don't know is why they don't come up and then sometimes we find out we waited too long i, I love two things you've said from a statistical perspective one is about matching which is if i face someone three levels above me not much is going to be learned and you know that's kind of known in statistical theory and the second thing i love that you said kylie is you're not making 20-year projections you said we may have some sense of what they're going to do next year and i think both of those are important Mm -hmm. learnings for our listeners on morton moneyball and i would also say that a lot of teams now are adjusting their thinking it's something i've been talking about for 5 or 6 years that don't try to project which 18 year old will be good at 25 that's too many things for a human to be able to comprehend and understand all those different possibilities and injuries and things say who's going to have the highest trade value in 2 years that's probably a better guide for where you're headed and so in that same way like there's guys we've talked about when i worked for the Braves like hey we had this guy off of our draft board. It turns out he hasn't been that good. So we were right. But in between that, he went from being worth $0 to being worth $60 million in trade value. Now he's back at zero, but that 60 million is worth something. If you kind of knew what was going on and could capitalize on it, certain teams like the Yankees are very good at this. Once a guy realizes value and probably isn't a starter on a playoff team, they get him out the door immediately. Wow. Well, this was leading to um, my next question, which was to how much difference do you see in the clubs moving from the showcase and the combine to the actual draft you're you've just watched this you've just been reporting on it you're writing on it now how would you characterize the differences across the league are there differences i mean in in football the evidence is pretty strong that teams don't differ in their ability to identify talent they might use the picks more strategically but in terms of just picking players it's just so hard it's not that they're not good at it they're kind of equally good at a very hard task the way you're describing baseball prospects, it sounds much more difficult, frankly. I haven't seen that exact study uh, reference to baseball. I'm pretty certain that that's sort of a universal truth. And I, I have, uh, I guess, recognized anecdotally that that's true um, because I d- did an exercise or I guess we prepared to do an exercise with uh, Jeff Pass and some of my coworkers where we were going to sort of draft a front office where if you have, you know, seven different departments, like, you know, amateur scouting, player development, draft scouting, um, uh, hitter and pitcher development, big league coaching, whatever. And uh, Pass and asked me, he's like, well, how would you, what would be your strategy if we did that? And I said, well, I would draft all of the other departments before amateur domestic scouting for the draft, <laughs> because I can make a case that there's like 15 teams that are the best. And every two or three years, it kind of changes based on like who seems to sort of be on a heater right now. And I think that's because it is one of the most efficient markets aside from maybe big league free agency, 
Um, cause there's still certain teams that like will reliably get a big leaguer out of minor league free agency every year, like sort of discarded players from AAA. And in the draft, it's like, no team is laugh out loud, terrible at it. Whereas like the Rockies had a stretch where like they spent $200 million and got nothing for it. And it was sort of hilarious that they could be that bad. Uh, and in the draft, like every team gets pretty good players every year and no team is killing everybody and no team doesn't miss at all. And no team is a hundred percent at anything. Uh, and it's kind of amazing that this high school college level is where that level of efficiency and competition seems to be almost most robust. What's your belief, Kylie, on how much is kind of unmeasurable? Because, you know, now in the world of artificial intelligence, video technology, tracking technology, big machine learning models that can be fit, you know, in some sense, we can incorporate human judgment, scouts ratings, we can, you know, we can measure their body motion, body size, we, we can collect all kinds of data. Do you think that's going to lead to really good predictions? Or they're just there's just going to be stuff that's unmeasurable, no matter what we do? So we have a bit of data on that, although it's I would say a little bit muddy that I think teams realized, say, seven, 10 years ago, that there's just simply too much information for just even a group of people to properly weigh. And so we have the introduction of draft models or algorithms or how you want to refer to it. Every all 30 teams have one now. I would say 20 of them are very focused on them. And maybe five or six are so focused that they essentially let the computer make picks for them. Like I've been told there's a team that they walk up to the board and look at a player and they're like, all right, how much does he want? 500 K. And someone's like, the computer says 400 K can't sign them. Like it's like that distinct. And I asked someone that worked for that team, if you imagine a player that like never pitched in a game, but threw 190 miles an hour in a bullpen, how much could you give him? And they were like, no stats, no internet rankings, nothing to plug in just that bullpen. He's like, like 300 K, we couldn't give much more than that. And I'm like, the, if this guy goes 400 miles an hour, they're like, no, it's still be the same number. Like there's just a cap on how much we can pay him if we don't have enough information. And I intentionally mentioned internet rankings because that's a big part of it. Um, that they basically found we need the wisdom of the other 29 teams. They're not going to tell us, but Kylie and a couple other people are talking to the other 29 teams. And we need to sort of, like I've seen the reports the teams have when I work for them. Uh, they are all over the place. There's a lot of opinions. There's a lot of people that don't take all the pieces of information into account. There's people in the office that can do that, but you need to sort of smooth out some of those weird parts. And sometimes those weird parts are someone finding a Hall of Famer like Albert Pujols that the other 29 teams didn't know. Most of the time, it's a guy that doesn't have a scale calibrated correctly, and you need to kind of adjust it to make it like usable information. Mm -hmm. So Kylie, um, two questions, both about uh, high school versus college um, players in the draft. First of all, I still see a lot of high school players. So if you can tell me a little bit about how much relative forecasting ability do you have with that fairly large age differential, um, you guys, 17, 18 year olds versus 21, 22 year olds. And secondly, what is approximately the current premium uh, the, the obvious, obviously you probably have to pay a lot more to sign a, a high school player than a college player because he doesn't have, the college player doesn't have alternatives anymore. They have to either go play baseball or do something else. So high school can threaten to go back and go, go to college. Um, so just can you answer a little bit about both of those? Yeah, it's a real, uh, as much as you want to make it a science, it's still a lot of an art um, because there's so much that can be, I mean, teams obviously are trying to figure out like how much will a kid grow? How much will his bat speed increase? Uh, I know there's one team that has like a very specific thing that they notice in, uh, they found the best predictor of a player's velocity is not how hard he's currently throwing. It is uh, taking high speed uh video of as he's delivering the ball a pitcher how his foot goes from like about to touch the ground to like that step over move to planting in the ground and pushing that that the numbers they get from that high speed video is more predictive of the velocity in the future than the current velocity which seems absurd but it's essentially saying this kid has inefficient uh, movements or has latent strength that will be coming and they've used it in their big league stadium. And they know that this is predictive. And I've mentioned that concept to teams. Like I have that video. I have companies that help me look through that video at a, you know, sort of low level, maybe like a baseline level of what they actually have. And they've told me, yeah, when you put that tweet out about that guy with the really good data, he has good data. We have a little more detail on how good it is and what it means, but like you're getting a little bit of signal there, essentially a company giving it to me for free to put on the internet. Um, so there's things like that. I, there's not like a, I would say like a blanket premium, but the idea of you pay more for raw tools, you have no idea how useful they will be in a game relative to a college player. I would say it's anywhere from like two to five times the price for like comparable players, but they're also much younger and you're buying them out of college and the upside is higher. And so that's, you know, that's kind of the, the set of equations you're trying to go through to make the decision. 
How much do they take? How much do teams and how much do you also think about uncertainty? Like my point estimate of player A is higher than my point estimate of player B, but there's so much uncertainty around A, I might even suggest us taking B. How much do teams take uncertainty into account when they're drafting, making up contracts, or thinking about the role of analytics? Uh, I would say the average scout, uh, especially when I was less in the game like three or four years ago, uh, is not great at using it in the ways that you are talking about it. Uh, I have found that the as more and more people that think I'll say like we do um, are getting into the game, it's becoming a more common thing. Like there's one team who's pro scouts. So this is where there's tons of data. They could essentially write the report with someone watching video in the office and then going through all the data. The guy that is in the stadium to A, say if anything weird's happening, and then B, see stuff the camera can't see, like talking to his pitching coach and finding out how how good he is at learning new things, watching his body language in the dugout. Like that's why they're there because they're probably going to get a pretty similar answer on like 90% of the players remotely. Uh, they have been instructed by their front office to put percentage chances of each of the various outcomes using the two to eight scale in baseball. So a lot of times in the past and for other teams right now, it would be uh, five as an average player, say a number four starter. And they would just say, he's a five. And it would say like, maybe risky, or maybe we'll see if he can do this, but it would be a very um, quantitative number with a qualitative explanation. And now it'll say 40% chance of a five, 10% chance of a six, 0% chance of a seven, you know, whatever it might be. And they sort of have meetings every six months or so to sort of calibrate this. Like, Hey, this guy, you said had 0% chance of being a seven a year later is a seven. So we're gonna need to adjust that. Here's some of the things that he had that you couldn't see that we could see. So maybe check these numbers before you go to the park to, to be able to calibrate what you're doing a little bit better which the word uncertainty might not come up, but the idea of risk and chances and variability and distributions, these things are becoming much more common now. One of the amazing things about hearing you talk about baseball scouting is that it's simply more advanced than scouting is in other sports for, for lots of reasons. But I feel like we're hearing kind of the future when we talk to you about what's going on in baseball for what we will see elements of in football and basketball and soccer down the road. Kylie, you said that you don't really think teams differ in their ability to pick players. You're, you're, you're speculating that that would be the case, as we've identified in other sports. But yet we see these grades come out about clubs, farm systems being very different. This, this club's farm system will be the best grader or whatever. If they're not better at identifying players, what is it that drives some farm systems, especially the clubs that tend to systematically have more valuable farm systems than others? What are the other factors that are going into that? The biggest one would just be draft capital. If you're constantly picking at the top of the draft, you're going to have more, you know, bites of the apple, more opportunities to spend that three to five X, um, you know, premium on a high school player. And if you hit, then all of a sudden, because the funny thing is, if you look at some of these studies, like I hear it from scouts all the time, because every team does this every year or two. Uh, which is which teams were the most effective in the draft. And every time someone brings it up, they give me a different answer because it'll either it'll be slanted to say that the team is currently either doing really well or really poorly, depending on who's doing the study within the organization, if they want to fire the scouting director or whatever. Uh, but it's always like, oh, if you do just like high school signs out of the last eight years, it's this team. And I'm like, yeah, because the one guy looks like a Hall of Famer that was taken in the eighth round. So the expected value was zero. And the delivered value is $300 million. And 10 teams have zero players of that demographic that have made it. And like the guardians come up all the time because they had like Zach Plesak and Shane Bieber and like handful of good big leaguers that came from late picks. But I'm like, you can't say they have a good process because of three players over 10 years. It's because they also have been doing other stuff and the stuff they did with those guys, they've been doing with other players. And every year there's new players and it seems sustainable. Uh, I would all that to say, I think what's also happening is teams will have an edge. So one of the teams I mentioned earlier, another thing that's happening is they started targeting some of the players that Cleveland was targeting and ha doing having a lot of success with. Uh, and they took a player that I thought was a little overvalued in the second round. And I said, why did you take him there? And he was like, well, Cleveland normally would have gotten this guy in the second round, but now uh, us and Cleveland and Milwaukee and a couple other teams are looking for that kind of player. And now that guy goes in the back of the second round because there's four teams racing to get him. And we've decided this is as high as you could possibly take him. And then there's three other lesser versions of him. And they all go in the third and fourth round now instead of the seventh and eighth round. And so Cleveland had an edge for a while where like James Karinchak, I think was a fifth or sixth rounder. That guy can't go there anymore because people have realized those players are easier to develop than we thought they were. And so now everyone is racing to get there. And so I think there are, if you remember in Moneyball, uh, they'll notice that walks are important and nobody figured that out for like five years. Now teams notice stuff in the draft about like the sports science -y stuff and the step over move I was talking about. Other teams will have it by the next year's draft. 
and it might only be one team and the next year it might be three teams. And so there's still a little bit of a window, but it slowly degrades to the point where I'm figuring out within a year or two. And I'm noticing that players with with great explosion toward the plate are being undervalued. I don't know what metric they're using. I just know that's what they're targeting. And when I say it, other teams figure it out. And so those windows are getting smaller and smaller, but if you've got that window for a year or two, you're going to have a big edge on everybody else. Right. Right. Fascinating. Thank you, Kylie. We are near to having to cut you loose. We know you have a, a deadline at the top here. Can you give us something uh, to make us better, smarter baseball watchers? What are you watching when, when you're watching the game these days? What are you paying attention to? What do you think is interesting? Any themes or patterns in the game this year that you, Kylie McDaniel, are especially interested in? You think Or metrics, statistics, anything that would be nice as well. Yeah, something we talked about uh, in the draft was the uh, the concept of do you so if you're thinking about a player that you're going to draft that's going to go to low A, do you want him to be very good at a broad set of things like can hit the ball to all fields, can adjust to all pitches and all locations, do all these things, or if let's say your big league team, you tend to like players who can take a high fastball and hit it out to right field and do like a very specific thing that's very important and very hard to teach. Uh, he can do that, but he can't do anything else. Like he's been only doing that. Braden Taylor at TCU is an example of a guy that did that. Um, and then just hope he can do it all the way up. And if it turns out in AAA that that trick runs out, he's got nothing else to fall back on. Like he is just this guy. Um, to me, that is super interesting. And I think something to look for within the in the big leagues or at any level, the minors or even college, is when someone gets that sort of pitch, a hitter into their sort of nitro zone or the area where it seems like they want it. Uh, if they want an inside fastball, are they going to wait until they strike out looking until they swing at that inside fastball? If they get the fastball in that area twice in a row, what do they do with the second one? If we're trying to talk about like things that can predict that someone will be able to go to the next level, even within the big leagues, it's when a mistake is making multiple times or when someone has a predictable pattern. So if you're watching a big league game and some guy throws two fastballs in the exact same location back to back, what happens the second time? That'll tell you a lot about how good that hitter actually is. And if he has a chance to sort of take a step forward uh, in the future. Mm-hmm. Cool. Thanks, man. Well, listen, Kylie, appreciate you taking time. Uh, welcome back from your big trip out there and good luck writing, writing up your reports on the draft. We'll look forward to seeing them. Yep. Thanks for having me. Kylie McDaniel, ESPN Baseball Insider, covers baseball, prospects, draft, free agency, and more. You can catch his work up there. Formerly wrote for Fangraphs and before that, Major League Baseball. He's been a repeat guest here on Wharton Moneyball. That has been a full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM for the whole crew. Adi Weiner and Eric Bradlow have been through here with me for the whole show Shane Jensen in absentia Maddie Dats the boss man Dion Simpkins the associate boss man appreciate you guys listening come back and join us next time between now and then enjoy your sports <laughs> <laughs>